0: The system of the last 50 years is over. It, it, it hasn't worked. It has broken down.
1: Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the Bitcoin mecca of the world. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with macroeconomist Luke Grohman. But before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. So, first up today, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. And with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning interest on your Bitcoin. Now, I am a customer. I love that my Bitcoin is working for me and that I receive interest every month from BlockFi. But also with BlockFi, you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. You can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. They have so much more coming this year and they are going to crush it. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to blockfi.com, which is b-l-o-c-k-f-i.com. Also, let's talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. I always use Kraken for buying and selling Bitcoin. Why? Because they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. And security is really important to me. They also have the best in-class customer service. So whatever issue I have... I know they will help me out. If you want to start trading Bitcoin, they have every tool you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start trading Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile first app so you can buy Bitcoin on the go and with their margin trading, futures and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to train Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to the show today, and this one is another monster. We've got Luke Groman on, who is a macroeconomist and the founder of FFTT, Forest for the Trees, a research company that studies the macroeconomic climate. Now a couple of weeks ago someone messaged me saying that I need to get Luke on the show. He's a Bitcoiner and I need to hear his thoughts. So you know what? I reached out to him. I said come on Luke, come on the show because this is something I've discussed with quite a few people. Actually as long ago as way before the pandemic people like Travis Kling were warning of the big systemic risks in the economy and warning of another financial crisis. So now we're essentially in another crisis. I wanted to talk to somebody else and get a get some kind of opinion on this wider economic outlook right now. But more importantly, I was interested to hear Luke's perspective on how we may mitigate our risks, the things to be aware of, and of course, scarce assets, how things like Bitcoin fit into this. So I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you have any feedback, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, on my other show, Defiance, a couple of things to update you on. If you listen to my four-parter about the band The Ghost Inside, I did a follow-up interview with them. That's available on Defiance now to listen to. And starting next week, it's a few days late just for a couple of reasons, but my three-parter looking at Ghislaine Maxwell starts. That starts on Monday. So you can check that out at defiance.news. Outside of that, have a great weekend, and I will see you all soon. Luke, good afternoon. How are you? Well, it's afternoon for me because I'm in the UK. I don't know where you are, but afternoon anyway.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Peter. I'm I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, so it's still morning for me, but uh, so good morning to you.
1: You're in Ohio, so you're a Buckeye.
0: I, I am a Buckeye. It's uh, good on you that uh, you 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 know the Ohio State Buckeyes. That's excellent.
1: Well, so this came up before because I interviewed Hester Pearce from the SEC, and I was dating a girl from Ohio at the time. So okay. uh, uh, she forced me to become a Buckeye, and she kept threatening <laughs> to take me to a uh, a, a game against Michigan, which never actually we never got around to doing it, but she's like, you've got to come to a Michigan game.
0: It's it's pretty incredible. It's uh, it's one of those life experiences that is uh, very, very a cultural experience, I guess. You, you once you've been to Ohio State, Michigan game, I would say. I'm biased being an Ohio guy, but you, you can say that you've you've really had a, a taste of midwestern American life. I would say.
1: Well, I, I've also been to Cleveland. Oh, have you really? Yeah, I've been. Yeah, I had a great time. Um, really, really good uh, selection of craft beer houses.
0: I feel. <laughs> Very much so. It is. Uh, you know, we had a pretty tough '70s, '80s, and into the '90s as a as a city, but it's really been sort of just just building itself back up and uh, become a much more localized economy centered around uh, healthcare, some innovation type work. But then, like you said, there is has built up this this great craft brewing i don't even want to call it a cottage industry because we've got some really big good ones here uh but you can there, there's no shortage of good beer which is really nice as uh, for myself as a beer drinker uh to, to sample the local sample the local uh micro well
1: listen it's great to get you on uh sometimes i can go down the bitcoin rabbit hole and spend all day talking to bitcoin people and you know Forget there's like a world outside of it, but somebody dropped me a DM the other day, and they're like, "Look, you've got to you've got to talk to Luke. Luke's a macroeconomic guy, but he's a, he's also a, he's you know he's a Bitcoiner, but he's a macroeconomic guy. But there's some people they won't know you. I, I don't usually do this with like the regular guests in the Bitcoin world who everyone knows, but just for those who don't know you, Luke, can you just give us a bit of a background, who you are, what it is you do, and this kind of secret, Mister X?
0: Certainly. So uh, I am the uh, founder and president of uh, FFTT, which is a macroeconomic and thematic research firm that I founded back in 2014. And what we do is aggregate a large amount of publicly available information from a disparate array of, of sources. And we aggregate that data in a pretty unique manner, trying to identify developing economic bottlenecks. uh, Because uh, prior to starting FFTT, I spent over uh, 20 years on the sell side in investment research and then in institutional equity sales. And what I found consistently in my career was that uh, excess economic returns or excess returns accrue to those sectors that stand to benefit from, or if you're short them, stand to be hurt by those areas in, in that are in in the way of or in the middle of economic bottlenecks as they develop so started this firm uh Going on seven years ago now, and it, it uh, had developed a knack for putting data points together in a unique manner. Uh, in my prior seats, uh, a couple of different re- uh, research and sales products I put together uh, on the sell side for investment professionals, and so been at this for like I said seven years, and uh, it's it's been a whole lot of fun. We do we do research products for institutional, high net worth investors, as well as a retail and and registered investment advisor product we have as well.
1: And pretty interesting times for you then with this type of work.
0: Very much so. Uh, When I started the business back in 14, we publish weekly and and there were weeks where it felt like it was hard to to find uh, something to write about. And starting around mid-2015 or 2016... I started leaving so much on the cutting room floor that we started having to add products to our product lineup, which was a which was a champagne problem to have. And so it's it's been a very, very fun time to be in the macro world and particularly uh to own my own firm and and be able to have the creative control to call them as I see them.
1: All right, great. Okay. So and then before we get into some of the details, because I, I definitely want to pick your brain on like What's going on uh, on the kind of macroeconomic side of things is like, tell me, just tell me how much of a Bitcoin are you? At? How much do you know? What what does it mean to you?
0: <laughs> I am a, I, I like Bitcoin. I own, I have probably called about two percent of my net worth in Bitcoin, and that's about I've probably ranged in the last three years from a very little up to probably a three uh, percent. So I'm I'm sort of middle of the range. I'm I've been adding recently. And for me, Bitcoin is a neutral reserve asset for the people at a time when it seems crystal clear to me that interest rates, real interest rates, are going to have to be significantly negative for a significant period of time. And so I'm not the right guy to talk to when you talk to, if, 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 when you're talking about some of the, cash rates and 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 mining costs and some of the real nitty gritty things that make you know that I think are important and interesting. I can't get into those details, but for me, it's this, um, you know, it's the ability for me to to pick this up and and buy Bitcoin with my excess earnings and store it there as opposed to uh, at where I'm going to get compensated on a real basis as real rates are are kept Negative by central bankers over what I again I think is going to be a long time to come
1: well i'm I'm also not the person to talk about those kind of deep technical things uh, related to hash rates. I wouldn't worry about that, but it's very interesting <laughs> what you did then with your phone because my personal uh, wealth is is either in my property which I live in uh, my savings in my bank or bitcoin. I have nothing else but I did recently go down the gold rabbit hole because I felt like i didn't want to have all my non monetary wealth stored in Bitcoin. I felt like I just wanted a, a small backup in gold. But the process of I had to actually go through to try and acquire it, because I wanted the physical gold. It was such yep. a pain. It was such a pain, man. So I ended up just buying more Bitcoin <laughs> because it's just so easy, so much easier to buy. And then I can put it in my long-term cold storage and forget about it. But all this process of getting gold was was a bit of a pain. But, I mean, the interesting thing there is, like, even if you don't know the technical details, you understand enough about it. To consider putting some of your net worth into it and a growing amount, so I think that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting. Um, I, I think it's a, stra- a technological manifestation, I guess, if you will, of gold. Gold, ultimately, if you what what is physical gold? Go- physical gold is just energy expended, stored, and portable, and that's effectively what Bitcoin is. It's it's it's. If you look at it from a purely monetary aspect, uh, that part to me was has been apparent for a long time and continues to be apparent that they are, I think, you know, sort of blood brothers, I guess, if you will, uh, on the, in the monetary world.
1: Right. Well, I'm going to come back to the Bitcoin stuff. Um, I'm especially interested in, you obviously provide uh, certain products, advice, consultation to people. People talk to you, they come to you, and I'd be interested to see or hear from you what kind of responses you get with regards to Bitcoin, how much you talk about that. But but we'll come back to that. Like, we're in a very, very strange times at the moment. Very strange times. Uh, I was actually doing an interview yesterday, and this guy was saying, Well, hindsight is 2020. He said, like, Actually, we need a new term for that. Because um, <laughs> a year we're having. But uh, I've, like, what the hell is going on, man? Like, let's start with the US, because the US leads kind of everyone looks to the u.s it leads the world you know on a lot of issues what is going on man because like
0: (laughs) seems like we're losing our minds a little bit doesn't it (laughs) you know i think ultimately if you look at it from a big picture standpoint there's a great book called the fourth turning written by strauss and Howe, and i think we're i think we're Waist deep and maybe chest deep in a fourth turning, and it's this generational theory where every four generations you go through this, this these great disruptions, and I think we're in the midst of a great disruption. And I think there's a number of things driving these great disruptions. Uh, I think the pace at which technology is changing is very disconcerting. If you, we as humans are have have, have 10,000 years of of evolution and we're used to seeing things change in a linear manner which means very little at all in our lifetimes and in the past 30 40 years we've seen these changes governed by Moore's law which is just faster and faster and faster it's and and so that is changing in both things, in a good way and a bad way, right? We, we again, we 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 have this thing which is absolutely would have been inconceivable thirty years ago, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago. But it also, at the same time, changes the world in in ways for large portions of the population that are negative in terms of the jobs it, it displaces, uh, the way it, it uh, pushes down on wages, etc. And so, I think I think that's part of it. But I think big picture, I think what we're Living through, partly technology driven, partly financial driven, is basically promises that were made are no longer able to be kept as a society to broad stretches of our society. And this is something happening not just in the US, but around the world. And policymakers, I think, are trying to figure out the least disruptive way to break those promises. And I think ultimately that leads to all sorts of cognitive dissonance. Uh, It leads to political strife. It leads to a a lack of faith in, in the authorities because the way the world worked, the way we were brought up to believe the world worked has been by virtue of a series of events over the last, I would say 19 to 15 to 19 years, if we dated it at 9-11, uh, the way we all understood the way the world worked in, in on September tenth, two 2001, has been proven to not be true, or it's changed so fast as to almost be unrecognizable. And so I think ultimately, it's these tensions, the, the core of these tensions that we're feeling, I think has a lot to do with trying to figure out how to restructure promises that are no longer able to be kept and then the political implications of those. And so that's probably how I would answer what what's going on that we can dig into from there. Yeah. You know, what are these promises? You know, I think I think some of them are as basic as the breakdown of uh, of of the the American dream here in America, right? The American dream is you go to school, you go to college, you come out of college, you get a job, a couple years, you buy a house, you buy a car, you get married, you have some kids. And that was sort of the way it all worked. And and over the past 30 years, in particular, when you look at some of the globalization, trade deals, since we got China into the WTO, uh, it has gone from being possible for a great portion of the population to feeling impossible. Uh, there was a, there was a great chart I saw the other day and it showed that if you, uh, it was measuring the cost of necessities. Uh, and so basically the cost, you know, it, it included education, which I think is necessary healthcare, which I think is necessary, shelter, food, uh, et cetera. And it showed that in 1985 in the United States, it took 20 weeks at the median wage uh, in the United States to be able to get these things. Okay, you know, 52 weeks in a year—that's 40 percent of your year. That's okay. That that works. That is conducive to um, a functioning, uh, happy society. Last year, or 2018, uh, that was 53 weeks to get those same goods. The problem of you course, do two jobs. Yeah yeah the problem of course is that there's there's only 52 weeks in a year and so when you need to work 53 weeks to get the stuff that you need to live when there's only 52 weeks in a year you're now on borrowed time in terms of social cohesion there's there's a problem and there's a whole bunch of reasons that happen that's so that's one problem right that's basically a manifestation of the the breaking of the quote unquote American dream uh, I think demographics
1: can are- I just ask you a question before you go into that sure. just related to that so and and is that because things have got more expensive or is this due to a like long term debasement of the currency
0: uh I think it is a long-term... It's a i it, I think partly at the basement of the currency. I think it's ultimate. I think you go back to what we did in 1971 in terms of closing the gold window and going to this purely fiat standard. This was the path we got on. And so when you look at the mm-hmm. reasons for for that happening... Uh, uh, You know that it now costs, or that it's now fifty-three weeks to to get the cost of necessities. You look within what's raising those costs. The cost of healthcare has risen tremendously. Well, you can't outsource healthcare to China very easily. Technology has had thus far a relatively limited impact on it. There are elements of what I would call racketeering elements within the healthcare sector in the U.S. in terms of how monopolies and 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 operate they're protected uh to keep margins artificially high and so some of that is regulatory that has has not been uh allowed to have healthcare costs come down education same thing where again there's there's not the 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 productivity enhancements of technology have not been brought to bear to bring those costs down and so you've seen higher the sort of the true rate of monetary debasement in my view has showed up in things like healthcare and in things like technology or excuse me uh, education and healthcare the flip side of it is that the areas where technology has been brought to bear or where these trade agreements uh, have have been brought to bear where the regulatory situation has broken unions so that the way the 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 uh, bargaining power of labor across the united states has been significantly eroded, if not destroyed entirely. You've got on the other side, wage pressure. Uh, You basically have have thrown a big portion of the US populace into competition uh, with these low cost wage areas of the world. And so they're getting it really on both sides. It's the it's the currency debasement on the healthcare and the education in particular, and some other things. And then it's the the technology and the global wage arbitrage side on their wages. And it's just this vice from both, both sides that is now coming to a head. And so I think that's what's right. what's caused it. And so the, that's one area that, that I think is breaking down in terms of of unpayable promises. Right, they're broken promises. Is the quote unquote American dream. U.S. entitlements. You've got this 70, 75 million strong U.S. baby boomer generation that, look, we've known they they were born from 1946 to 1964. It was no surprise that they were eventually going to turn 65. Anybody with an actuary table knew this was coming. And yet we've lacked the political courage to reform these entitlements year after year after year after year. And the problem with pushing things off for the long term is that sooner or later the long term arrives. And so here too, and this is a problem again that's not unique to America. There's a number of different Western social democracies, in particular, that have similar problems. But we now have these 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 public pension fund promises uh, that are unpayable in re- in anything resembling real terms. Um, they are imminently payable if we use the printing press, and that's my view, and that's part of the reason I like Bitcoin and gold, etc. But trying to figure out how to pay unpayable promises is very tricky politically. And again, adds to the tension, adds to this feeling of of broken promises and the, that the way the world used to work isn't the way it works anymore.
1: How much of this also comes down to changes in the way banking works and the access to liquidity that banks have and the lending practices? Because I did a thing, I looked into Mnuchin, I did a four-part for another podcast series I did. And I was kind of like looking at his track record. And I was looking at after the 2008 financial crisis, what happened when he started uh, one West Bank. And during the housing crisis, one of the things that was really interesting was I actually went back a step and looked where they neutered Glass-Steagall, if I've pronounced that correctly, uh, which I think they tried to start under Reagan, came under Clinton. But what actually ended up happening is after... um, Essentially, all these people lost their homes during the 2008 financial crisis. A lot of these homes were packaged up and bought by hedge funds like BlackRock. But a lot of them were lent the money by One West to buy these homes. And they were buying like thousands of these homes at a time. You know, tens, of tens, tens and tens of thousands of homes ended up being owned by hedge funds or, you know, as such. And that to me just seemed like this seemed wrong. This seemed like the movement of money enabled very rich people to get a lot richer at the cost of the, let's say, the American dream. How much of that have you looked at? I, I have not written about it a lot, but
0: I have looked at it a lot. I've, I've lived it, uh, being from Cleveland, yeah. Ohio. Really, when you go back to 1971, when the US went off the gold standard that was a political decision that was made ultimately. In addition, it was an economic decision, but a political decision. At that point, there were going to be winners and losers, and the winners were those people that were involved with the what I have come to call the dollar export business or the treasury export business. And as of 1971, after we went off the gold standard, the United States got out of the business or began to get out of the business of making stuff and started to get into the business in a big way of making and exporting dollars and treasury bonds to the world and letting the world make the stuff for us. And so that hollowed out manufacturing across the Midwest, across the United States, it weighed on working class wages, it worked on middle class, or or, uh, weighed on uh, middle class wages. Um, And so I think this dynamic that you're talking about was almost the the cherry on top of a 40-year of a Sunday of this dynamic of success not being tied to a better product or a smarter solution or manufacturing making something, success became increasingly driven by how close you were to the dollar export business And, and as a result, you would have the lowest cost of capital and whoever had lowest cost of capital would win. And this was, I think, just sort of the end game of that, where, uh, of of that, of that 40 year process. And Mm. the reason I say it's the end game is because I, I think So there's something we have written about a lot has been the United States Defense Department in particular, but other national security interests as well, saying that now that we have moved so much of our production offshore, uh, it's become a national security risk, as highlighted by COVID, for example. COVID was really something that I think was the first time both sides of the political aisle in the United States were able to say... OK, I get why offshoring all our manufacturing, this this unrestricted free trade, we're going to make dollars and everybody else will make stuff for us. And then we'll give them the dollars and we'll, we'll recycle the dollars. And why they finally understood that that was a problem, which was we needed equipment for COVID and we didn't have it and we couldn't make it. And we needed to ask China pretty please. And then they started looking around and saying, wow, it's not just masks. We get eighty percent of our antibiotics or ingredients in our antibiotics from China, who certain people in the United States are having are, are advocating an increasingly adversarial relationship. Well, it doesn't seem like a really good idea to start an adversarial relationship with someone who's in, who controls eighty percent of your antibiotics. And so, I think we're. That's why I say I think the culmination or a culmination of this. Forty-year process was what you described in terms of they had access to cheap capital when capital wasn't around, and they had access to cheap capital because of political connections. Uh, ultimately, uh, it wasn't like you know they made the dollars better than somebody else. I mean, you and I could have made the same dollars. It's a couple keystrokes on a computer. It was political connections and. This kind of ties into that whole theme we started with of, boy, the way the world worked, the way everyone thought the world worked in 2000. Um, 2008 was one of those big aha moments for a lot of people where they said, wait a second, this 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 isn't what I was told about the American dream. The American dream was not, hey, you know, you work hard and you buy a house and then they blow up the economy because of some bad regulatory repeals under Clinton and Bush that you referenced and then i can't buy my you know i can't afford my mortgage payment cuz i get laid off because of the crisis and now a hedge fund that does have access to capital for political connections gets to buy my house you know and again if the, if the hedge fund had the wherewithal to hold the money back and was sitting in cash waiting throughout the boom that would be a different story. That person had had stewarded capital, certainly would have been taking a lot of heat about sitting in cash during the prior boom. But in a lot of cases, that that wasn't the case. They got the bailout because they were politically connected. And then they took the bailouts. And I'm not talking hedge fund. hedge funds are probably not the best example uh, because most hedge funds actually were not systemic to the crisis. Most were in a very good position. But there were, Banks or some of these these more politically connected entities will say um, is probably the right way to frame it. That that did do that, and that's that that's crony capitalism. That's not capitalism. That's not what the American dream was based on.
1: Yeah, Elizabeth Warren, I think, rightly identified that. I think I saw her uh, when it was again. It was when I was doing my work on Mnuchin, and she. Um, she spoke to the Senate, and she talked about how Goldman Sachs has become a, uh, or Wall Street has become an extension of the the White House, and the number of Goldman Sachs alumni now working within the White House. For me, that that seems there's something there's something wrong there. There's something in there that just seems like if you're meant to be working for the American people, how can you be getting your policy advice from pe- people who are helping their friends?
0: Well, it's you know some of it is ultimately. You know, again, it's really a choice, right? So, there's oligarchs in most nations. There's centers of power in in every nation, right? Um, and when you look back, why I think it's important to look back why Wall Street has so much had so much influence within the White House and within the, the policy circles in Washington. And that was a function, really, again, of this decision in 71, where we got out of the business of making mm-hmm. stuff and got into the business of making dollars. And so the relative, if you look at, there's, there's charts, and I'm going to misquote it, uh, but if you look back to, say, 71 or 75, the percent of US GDP coming from finance was 3 or 4%. Uh, and by 2007, 2008, it was, it was like 18%, 19%. It was some huge number. And the problem there, there's a number of problems with this. First of which is that finance is, by definition, I won't say a it's not a, not, a, not a predatory uh, um, uh, activity, but is an activity that takes a cut on other economic activity. And so, like when you have something that's drawing you know three percent of your blood out of you every year, if you have some sort of it's a, it's a parasitic activity <laughs> ultimately. Uh, and I don't mean to say that all finance people I work in finance I, I don't. And they. I, I love my clients. They're, they are wonderful. That is not what I'm saying. Is that, but it's it just strictly defined as what finance is. Finance ultimately takes a little cut each time. That's how they make their money. And that's fine when it's 3%, 4%, 5%. You get up to 20% of GDP nearly, and they're taking their cut. It leads to very distorted GDP outcomes. This wealth gap just blows apart. Your, your the, dyna, the dynamism of your economy begins to wane again because it becomes much more lucrative for your brightest and most talented people. If you're an unbelievable engineer at MIT, you could come up with cure for cancer or you could go work at a hedge fund and make a lot more money a lot faster without the legal risk. And so it leads to these distortions. So there was There's a great article written uh, by a gentleman named Simon Johnson, who was the former head of the IMF in 2009. May 2009. It was called "The Quiet Coup," and it looked at the United States crisis. and He said, "Look, this is this is sadly very familiar to me as the former head of the former chief economist of the IMF. I've seen this over and over in all these other emerging market economies. And historically, when we've had these types of crises, the playbook is very." straightforward. The IMF comes in, we demand political reforms, we demand economic reforms, we basically take the reigning oligarchy associated or tied in with the government and pull them out, that business oligarchy, separate them so that we can make the necessary reforms to the system. And if they don't agree to those reforms, we leave and say, fine, we'll come back because we know they're going to have another crisis. And then we'll come back and see if they're serious the next time around. And he said, the US has an oligarchy. It's the financial slash Wall Street oligarchy. And if they don't do these reforms, they're going to have another crisis and it's going to be worse. And sure enough, we didn't do the reforms, really. There was some talk, but they weren't, you know, they were more around the fringes. A lot of them have been sort of defanged. And again, it's, one of these very difficult things that is not black and white. There are shades of grey. Uh they are difficult to implement. They involve pain the politically powerful interests. And so they didn't happen. And so I think was we're Doc, now was,
1: sorry. Was Dodd Frank one of those reforms that was required?
0: Uh I, I would I would lump that in with yes, with yeah. reforms that were that were put in place. Yeah.
1: But they didn't want it.
0: <laughs> you know
1: it's Well Mnuchin didn't.
0: They're watered down, they you know, and, and again, it's really even things like Dodd Frank. Some of those reforms are ultimately treating the symptoms and not the disease itself, and the disease itself right, is okay. the structure of the currency system, sort of the original sin of 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 1971, and and even arguably the original sin of 1946, that in, in terms of Bretton Woods and choosing the dollar over the bankor they can they can tinker around a little bit around the edges um but until you address that original sin, you're going to keep having these same types of problems
1: it's It's interesting you talked about nineteen seventy one a few times Have you seen the website the uh w t f happened in nineteen seventy one so I know the guys who did that they've been on i think it's a fantastic website. I find the whole topic fascinating but um I haven't heard anyone during the process when I've talked about it before mention what happened in forty six with Bankor. Can you explain what what that was? What should have happened?
0: Sure. So in in nineteen forty four, I, I probably should say forty four, but, but at any rate, forty four. Obviously, there was the meeting at Bretton Woods where it was apparent the Allies were going to win the war. We need to get together to start structuring what the global the global economic and monetary system looks like after the war. And there were two proposals. There was A proposal by John Maynard Keynes, ironically, and his proposal was the Bancor, which was a neutral settlement asset or currency, I believe, tied to a basket of commodities. And basically, his proposal was that any time a a nation's surplus got too high, basically, surpluses and deficits had to be settled in Bancors, effectively, right? So uh, this neutral settlement asset that no one could print. And um, that would prevent imbalances from building up over an extended period of time. If you ran surpluses for a while, you would have to be, you you, you would be receiving Bancor uh, and your currency would strengthen. Uh, relative to those paying the Bancor, their currency would weaken. They would become more competitive vis-a-vis you your economy would slow, theirs would accelerate, and it would be a much more uh, self-correcting and stable system. The other proposal was what the American proposal was, a gentleman named Harry Dexter White, and that was what we went with. It was the dollar is pegged to gold at $35 an ounce, and then every other currency is tied to the dollar. And the Bancor solution I think was a better solution but the Americans had all the industrial capacity we were the world's biggest oil producer we had all the gold uh, we had really the only economy that was left that was not uh, dis uh, you know destroyed or uh, partially destroyed by the war And so th- we went with our solution even then if you look at the 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 incidence of crises from 46 to 71 they were much less during this more, Stable, you know, defined monetary system, but that's, and it's interesting when you look at in early 2009 after the U.S. did the big QE, if you will, when we went from just buying mortgage backs to the Fed went from just buying mortgage backed securities to buying a trillion dollars in treasury bonds. The Chinese, uh, the head of the PBOC, uh, Zhao, came out with a three-page white paper published with the BIS in which he said the world needs a new reserve currency, a new reserve asset and he specifically cited Keynes's bancor and said we need something like the bancor and given how crisis prone the system we went with has been that's probably a sign that that would have been the better solution anyway so I, I, it's interesting mm. that there are that it is still being talked about today by some of the creditor nations like china
1: sounds a little bit like something bitcoin could do a uh, a neutral currency Which no one can can meddle with. Next up, I talk to Luke more about macroeconomics and Bitcoin. But before that, I have messages from my amazing sponsors. So first up today, we're going to talk about Casa, the best in Bitcoin security. Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, your own personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And I've been talking to Nick, the CEO, and I twisted his arm to run a competition so they are giving away a one-year platinum membership for their Bitcoin multi-sig security solution, which is worth $1,800. For your chance to win, all you need to do is head over to their website and register your email address. The address you need to go to is keys.casa forward slash whatbitcoindid, which is k-e-y-s dot c-a-s-a forward slash whatbitcoindid, and you will be joining their mailing list. The winner will be announced on September the 23rd. Also, if you're interested in just checking out their products and improving your Bitcoin security, then just head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, we're going to talk about sportsbet.io, the best place for online gaming. And you heard recently, with the return of the Premier League, they are sponsoring Southampton and I've put a Bitcoin logo on the front of the shirt. Well, they haven't stopped there. They've just announced that they are the new betting partner for Arsenal. So they're really pushing Bitcoin out there to football fans. And to celebrate all of this, they have another great offer for you. They have extended their free bet offer, but this time they are offering two free bets on Premier League games. If you place a 1 MBTC bet this time, you get two free 1 MBTC bets on matches this weekend. Any sports, any match, and any market to qualify. Or you can just bet on Liverpool to win and Tottenham to lose. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S P O R T S B E T.io. Lastly, but not least, is Lease Authority back as a sponsor on the podcast. Now, they are for you techies out there the builders out there who are creating applications. Least Authority is a security consulting company who is pushing the limits on how to build privacy-respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design, so they can help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2P network design, your use of cryptography, and so much more. If you want to improve your security strategy, where you can arrange a no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you with your next project. Just head over to their website and hit the Schedule a Call button, and that's at leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Okay, so just going back to like the macroeconomic stuff. So I've heard you talk about one of the biggest risks now is sovereign debt. And specifically, I heard you recently talk about there's four possible outcomes. Can you talk through this for me? Because this was really fascinating.
0: Sure. So if you go back... So in 2000, we had an equity bubble. Mm-hmm. And the way the policymakers dealt with the equity bubble when it burst was they basically kicked the problem upstairs to the banking system via a housing bubble. They, you know, Paul Krugman famously said, we need a housing bubble to make up for the lack of loss of demand from the equity bubble. And so... That became a banking system bubble/slash housing bubble. And when that burst, they kicked the problem upstairs to the sovereign level. In other words, we all saw how the, the government's backstop the banking system. So the problem now sits at the sovereign debt level. At the same time as demographically, we have all of these entitlements going from off balance sheet debt to on balance sheet debt. In other words, we have to send the money to 75 or 70, 75 million baby boomers in the US. So We have a sovereign debt bubble. If you look at where these bonds are priced, where these bonds are rated, relative to the underlying fundamentals of the bonds, it's, in my view, by far the biggest bubble out there. Now, ultimately, they're not going to default on the bonds. They can make, the, the, the central banks can make the bonds priced at whatever they want them priced at by printing money and buying the bonds to make sure rates are where they want them to be. And so what ultimately, when you have a sovereign debt bubble, what you have is a currency bubble, a fiat currency bubble, because ultimately, they will create currency to keep the pricing of those bonds at politically expedient levels. So when you, there's a great white paper written by Carmen Reinhart and uh, Bellin Sabrancia uh, from January of 2005, and it ha, it's entitled The Liquidation of Government Debt. And to me, it's a must-read white paper because it it lays out what they're going to do. It's basically and, and it looks at the history of these things. And that's where this comment I made, where there's only four outcomes, is they have a great chart in there that looks at sovereign debt to GDP for both advanced market, advanced economies, and emerging economies, going back, I think 120 years, 150 years. And the point is that every time, and it doesn't matter if you're advanced or you're emerging. Every time debt to GDP at the sovereign level has gotten to where we now are, there's only four outcomes, and that is default, or restructuring, inflation, financial repression, which is basically just a version of, of inflation, or hyper a few hyperinflations, and that that's it. Those are your those are your outcomes, and and this this ties back to this point of policymakers are. Realizing that the promises they've made are unkeepable in real terms, and it's trying to really figure out: are we going to default? Are we going to inflate? Are we going to financially repress? Or are we going to hyperinflate? And they don't want to hyperinflate mm-hmm. because that is a complete indictment of them. They can't. They they can't really default uh, for political reasons. And so we've been really since two thousand eight when. That crisis, combined with where we were uh, in terms of debt, how we dealt with that crisis, and then the, the demographics since 2008, you've basically been trying to financially repress and inflate, and really more financially repress, which is just we're going to keep rates low and understate inflation, and hopefully inflation will will rise, and we will grow our way nominally out of this debt burden and the bet there made the implicit bet made by these policymakers is that they'll be able to pull it off without political unrest because ultimately what financial repression does is it takes you from you know needing 20 weeks of work to buy essentials to needing 53 weeks of work to buy essentials and once you get to 53 weeks of work to buy essentials your ability to financially repress is you, you're 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 done. You're 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 going to start seeing financial, or excuse me, social unrest. You're going to start seeing political populism. So, you know So we started with four. So they they're not going to default. So we can take that mm-hmm. one away. Financial repression they've tried for three years. We're going to take that one away, or for for twelve years, and and we've now hit the point of no return. We've got social unrest, political populism. That's not an option anymore. So now we're left with the two: inflation or hyperinflation. And they don't want to do hyperinflation. So to me, it's interesting within this context of, again, these things laid out five years ago by the you know, people writing white papers for the IMF. So these are being passed around official policy circles. It's interesting to me now that the Fed, hey, we're making this major shift. We're, we're serious about inflation this time. To me, I think is very interesting from a timing standpoint that I think I think they know, you know, restructuring default was never an option. Financial oppression was tried and failed. And we got two left, inflation and hyperinflation.
1: Right. But how do they prevent inflation becoming hyperinflation? <laughs> because, that um, is the run. yeah, because, look, I saw Jerome Powell's comments, which I thought was very telling, which is a trigger to me to consider having a, a little less cash in the bank and and other assets. But, um like, how much inflation do you think people will swallow?
0: I think it depends on where it shows up. Okay. And 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 so if it's more of the same of what we've seen, which is asset-centered inflation, wealth inequality increases, this, the cost of living for everybody else gets more expensive, I don't think that's an option anymore. Um, politically, and I think they understand that I think that 's what Powell is saying between the lines and so the one of the things that grabbed me about powell 's comments was that how labor market focused he was, how much it was all around we 're going to let the labor market do what it 's going to do, and we 're going to let it run hot, and we are not going to stop the party before it really gets going because then. For at least a while, that can be a really nice inflation for a lot of people. And the reason I say that is it, it, it can amount to a debt jubilee. If your wages start rising 10, 15% annually, and your mortgage is capped at 25 by the same Fed and other monetary authorities, then suddenly your real cost of living, after adjusting for your house payment and your mortgage payment, uh, or, or your car payment, excuse me, which are fixed, there's gonna be a span of a few years where you can re- you can you can really pay down debt and and g- nominal GDP can really grow. And the US government can do the same thing because as wages grow 10, 15% for everybody, tax receipts start growing 10, 15%, while their bond rates are 65 basis points for 10 years, uh, then suddenly if you can do that for three, four, five years, you could wake up and find yourself, instead of at 120% debt to GDP, you could be back at, I don't know, I've not run the math, 80%, 75%, something eminently more sustainable. And I think that's that to me is, I, I just thought that portion of Powell focusing so much on the labor markets was interesting, because I think for that span of time, you can have a, a really positive inflationary experience now if it gets He's away from them for it. uh bondholders bondholders bond are paying for it you hold bonds thank you for your donation uh you're gonna get every dime you're promised and it's gonna go from buying you you know you know to par- <laughs> paraphrase my, my 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 friend Raul Paul he said look buy bonds wear diamonds and it's you'd buy bonds wear diamonds this year and then you'd buy bonds and wear cubic zirconia the next year and then you'd buy bonds and wear cracker jack on a string the year after that and that's you're going to get every coupon payment you're promised. It's just not going to buy you as as much stuff. Uh, it's not going to buy you as much right. labor. It's, you're basically they're the holders of the underpriced mortgage of the of the undercouponed mortgage. So, so, the,
1: so they're debasing the bonds.
0: They're debasing the currency, and as a result, yeah. the bonds. And that ultimately yeah. ties back to my original point of this: the promises of the system are unpayable. Who's going to pay? And it's. For the last twelve years, it's been the debtors have paid the debtor. It's basically been, hey, this, the currency is generally sacrosanct. We're the, the, we're going to keep the currency, the the, the value, of the currency relatively constant to keep the bondholders whole, close to whole in real terms. And that, to me, is the big question of what did Paul really say? What is he really going to do? Because to me, it seems very possible it's a change toward a political decision. Really, he may have just made, which is. We're no longer worried about keeping the bondholders whole on a real basis, and we're going to let the uh, the currency fall enough that wages can rise, and we can start to basically shift some economic wealth back to this this labor and, and middle class that has been under pressure for twelve years, but really, if you look back, fifty years
1: Well, so it's funny you bring up Rao Powell, I know Raul. Rao's been on my show a few times. Um, so he's going deep in Bitcoin.
0: I saw that. I saw that.
1: Yeah. I Just on his Twitter, I was trying to remember, did he say 50% or something? I don't know. He put out a wild number, and um, I was trying to remember what it was. So listen, so, so okay, these these are interesting times and kind of scary times for a number, for a number of reasons, but another thing Raul said to me, actually, another time, I was like, Raul, what do you do? And he said, listen, you've got to, first, you've got to hustle, because it's going to get competitive out there, and he said hold some physical cash because you never know when you might need it. And he said, hold uh, scarce assets such as Bitcoin and gold. And I, I thought they were, they were really good points. But like uh, similar question to you, because there'll be people who listen to this and maybe not economists and you know, they're just going to work every day and they're kind of like just hoping to protect their family, protect their assets. How, how do you think other people should be, like normal people should be preparing for these situations? What are the risks that normal families have right now?
0: so i I think the risks that normal families have are policy errors by central banks, I think is probably their biggest risk. and And by that, I mean we have the u s. fiscal and I'm going to focus on the u s because that's where I spend most of my yeah, time, but right. I think this applies, applies broadly uh, uh, across a lot of the developed and even some of the emerging markets. The fiscal situation of these countries, of the U.S., was already critical. It was an incipient crisis heading into COVID. And COVID has blown an absolute gaping hole in the fiscal situation. It's turned it from an incipient crisis to an acute crisis. And so when I say policy error, if the Fed, the longer the Fed goes while trying to, as I've equated it, ride two horses with one rear end, with the horses moving in opposite directions, the worse the bigger the risk for the average family. And by that, I mean, they need to understand that the system of the last 50 years is over. It, it, it hasn't worked. It has broken down for any number of reasons, and they now face a choice. They can pretend that it hasn't and try to keep bondholders relatively whole on a nominal on a, on a real basis. Um, or they can start implementing policies, that hurt the value of bonds on a real basis, but help average families, uh, whether that is you know, the universal basic income stuff until the economy gets back on its feet, different types of education, job retraining type stuff uh, or subsidies, those types of things need to happen and I, I, I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Uh, maybe I'm not fully optimistic yet, but I'm hopeful that the Fed's latest sh- major shift, quote unquote, is the beginning of an acknowledgement that that is is a is a real is is a real shift in policy choice. Because I think that is that's the biggest risk is that ultimately the political power uh, in this country, which still is heavily around Wall Street, says, you know what, we're just gonna. We're going to preserve the value of, of, of the dollar no matter what, and we're not going to implement these programs, and we're just going to let it turn into you know a Lord of the Flies type situation, so proverbially, for the, for the middle class and the working classes, that's not a good outcome. It might make them feel good about the mm-hmm. real value of their bonds in the short run, but now you're getting. I mean, you're seeing it in the social unrest around this country. People are uncomfortable. There are promises that are not being able to be kept. And so far, the weight of where that that rock of unkept promises has fallen has fallen almost entirely on the backs of 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 middle and working class. Uh, you know, basically the ninety percent or the ninety nine percent. And what you're seeing uh, around the U.S. around the world, I think, is just a physical manifestation of. They can't take anymore. There's no more blood to squeeze from that stone. So I think that's the big risk. And you know, for the average family, to me, something we wrote about for our clients earlier this year was a a, a Jacob Fuger uh allocation. So Jacob Fuger was the wealthiest man in history. Um, and you can look him up. And uh, at any rate, the 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 punchline was. He said you keep your wealth in four buckets. Cash, 25% cash, 25% gold, 25% equities and then 25% real estate. And be prepared to lose money on one of them all the time and then just re-normalize, you know, re-rebalance as one wins and one loses. And he was able to carry his fortune forward for a long time using this, you know, a build it and then carry it forward by using this allocation. Now, for today I would say okay, I like the cash, I like the gold. I think gold, Bitcoin, you know, you can talk about those allocations. That's to me very similar asset classes. Real estate equities, uh, I think again, are they they're they inflation they're inflation hedges. If within your twenty five percent cash, if you wanna have some, you know, sovereign bonds or or, or high grade to me, I I I don't like sovereign. I wanna own high grade corporate bonds. You that can you can count that within your cash. So I I wouldn't say it as black and white mm. concrete, 25% cash, but I think having that type of allocation for the average person, I think is really important, particularly when you look at where we are, right? We went through the, the where we are, big picture, and how this has worked out. There's four ways it works out, and we've not we've tried two of them. One was never going to happen. Second way has been tried and failed, and so we're left with inflation or hyperinflation. I don't think hyperinflation is going to happen, uh, particularly in the United States, for a number of different reasons: politically, economically, how broad, and diverse, and big our country is. It, it would be really, really hard to have happen. So I, I don't think it's a risk you need to actively hedge. But it's it's a tail. It's a far, far tail risk. And at any rate, even if that never happens, which I don't think it will, you still have, to me. It is, I think, becoming a political impetus for inflation. That that's the only way out at this point. And some people say they can't make it happen. You know, I I, I strongly disagree. You know, there was a, a we were something we wrote about for clients recently was um Arthur Burns, the former Fed chairman before Volcker, gave a speech in 79 in which he said, Look, for the last 15 years, we could have stopped this inflation anytime we wanted. It was just a political decision. We were so scared of the prior, you know, the prior transformative experience of, of of that era of policymakers was the Great Depression. This this just deflation they couldn't stop, and so they were consistently erring on the side of inflation. We could have stopped it any time we wanted. Well, we fast forward forty years from there. The transformative experience of this generation of policymakers was the seventies inflation we can't stop it we don't want to do that again and so they have consistently erred on the side of deflation have we just had that transformational change maybe but it it can happen very quickly it doesn't take much they can they it, it's again it's a political decision it's not the economy has to do certain things they can a small number of people can get in a room and can make it start to happen and that was the lesson of the 70s
1: how much is the election playing into this at the moment because i imagine four months before or three three to four months before an election your policies will be very different post-election because (laughs) your your goal is to win right i mean one of the most important things for donald trump is to keep the stock market high because that's one of his calling cards right he's he's lived off that are you imagining the policies are going to reflect the fact there is an election coming and that therefore the things that happen in the short term are going to be things that are going to support Donald Trump's re-election?
0: short answer is yes. I do think yeah. the – and and I th- personally, something I think we're watching real time is this debate over the renewal of the COVID stimulus where you've yeah. got the Republicans seemingly – Not seemingly. They are advocating for a stimulus light, I think is what they're calling it, or or, or, um, program relative to what the Democrats want. And so it's almost to my eyes like they're trying to maintain their fiscal discipline credentials ahead of this election, because I think they know in their home states in some cases, if they just say, yeah, what the heck, let's just do another two or three trillion, they run the risk of being voted out of office by these fiscal conservatives. So, I think we're seeing some elements of that. Um, I agree with you that Trump, I would think, would want the stock market to stay high. Once we get on the other side of the election, to me, it's fascinating, right? Because on one hand, we have Trump who is the king of debt, who is I've been told is is quote Trump on the leash, quote unquote, not, and that if he gets reelected, you'll see Trump off the leash. Which yeah. okay. <laughs> your Jesus. listeners around the world are going? Oh my God! Yeah, no, yeah. I, and that, that's <laughs> that's um, yeah, that's what I've been told. Uh, so uh, that that to me is interesting. And then on the other hand, you've got Biden, who a couple weeks ago in the New Yorker, Obama said policies are not that different from Bernie Sanders, and right so and people said to me well why doesn't sand why does sanders need to run trump began implementing his policies in terms of some of the stuff and 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 biden's picking up the mantle so long-winded way of saying i think in the short run it's it's a little hard to see what the ultimate policies will be both from the political side from the fiscal side but also what the Fed really meant. And so to me, it's going to be really interesting. What I'm really watching for, I guess, are, you know, in addition to the potential for an air pocket here before the election because of this, you know, feigned fiscal discipline by certain parties, um, is on the other side of this after whoever's been reelected or newly elected. What does that look like from the fiscal side? Because the Fed is saying, listen, we're just going to keep supplying liquor to the party. And that to me is where things could start to change pretty quickly in terms of the narrative and the consensus views, the inflationary readings, the rate of negative real rates, which, you know, to me speaks very positively for things like gold and Bitcoin.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, listen, look, we should, we should close out on a little bit of a little bit more of Bitcoin. Um, and I'm especially interested in your work. You, how much do you discuss Bitcoin with your clients? What the kind of general feedback is because Personally, when you talk about those um, percentages, like I'm probably like, I don't know, what did I say? I'm probably 20% property, 0% equity, 5 to 10% cash. The rest is Bitcoin. Now, that's part because of the price I bought. Bitcoin it has gone up. But also, at the same time, I'm just nervous holding cash. But also, I'm up to about 60% of my company treasury, which is a very small little podcast but is six figures is now also Bitcoin because I'm nervous holding too much cash. What's the kind of gem well how much do you is does Bitcoin come up and what are the general kind of things you're hearing about it? I know that's a broad question
0: No no it's it's a great question. Um, so the Bitcoin has started to come up I think a lot more not even I think I know has come up a lot more in institutional conversations over the past. Probably 12 to 18 months. And it is just really questions more Bitcoin curious, we'll say, and just in terms of, okay, when we lay out what's happening at the sovereign level and and why that points to the need for a neutral reserve asset and the the signs that this transition to a system with a neutral reserve asset is already well underway it leads to these questions of, okay, well, what what does that mean for Bitcoin? I get that you like gold, Luke. What does it mean for Bitcoin? And how could Bitcoin be a solution to that problem? And so there's there's definitely been a lot more interest in it at, at the institutional level. Uh, and I think you're starting to see some of that in some, some of the, the recent press releases where, you know, I think it was Fidelity launched a Bitcoin uh, fund or, or um, you know, there's, there is- Real players are interested in being in the space, and and so I think that when you see headlines like that, you should take that as as a read on on the level of interest that I've been seeing and being asked about over the past twelve to eighteen months in particular.
1: What's putting people off though? Is, is it just they don't understand it? Are they worried about regulation? Do people worry about volatility?
0: You know, I think it's less the volatility and it's more, and I think it comes down to really understanding, uh, and it's an area where I admittedly still struggle, is when you start hearing sovereigns say central bank, digital currency, and they start to get nervous about basically. Bitcoin is a truly libertarian asset. Nobody controls it. And I think ultimately that is probably the biggest stumbling block, even for people like myself, of will they really allow a truly libertarian reserve asset to just completely overtake their ability to manage the system? And that breeds a whole bunch of questions. But I think that's that's the fundamental concern. And, and for me, personally, it's it, it's reflected as well. and okay, if we have to have some sort of systemic reset, if we assume central banks are still involved at that point, which I do, then I look at central bank balance sheets and I see that they have gold on their balance sheet and they do not have Bitcoin on their balance sheet. In which case, if there's some sort of systemic debt reset, you could see clear to gold getting written up to a really big number on central bank balance sheets. I think Bitcoin would participate in that at least side by side and maybe even more. But I think that is a I think that's a holdup. As you look at within the current central bank structure, there is I think an implicit concern that as events happen, you basically have to make a have to gauge a view of of, of will the libertarian asset get big enough where it can simply overwhelm the central banks and the entire current quote unquote operating system of the currency system or will there be you know will the central banks maintain some level of control uh, use gold whatever and to me that is i think probably the biggest holdup it's probably something that can be resolved with and that's again or I fall down of, no, listen, you have to understand if you look at the technology and and the cryptology, et cetera, that it, it simply can't be done. And I've read some of those arguments and I've just not been A, fully smart enough and B, devoted the time to get myself comfortable fully with the, there's just absolutely no way the authorities can stop this libertarian neutral reserve asset from doing what it's going to do.
1: I mean, they can't shut it down, but they can legislate and make it difficult. I do think, though, there's a bit of a moat being built around it by the size of the Bitcoin economy itself. And you've got these companies like uh, MicroStrategy just recently put, I think it was 50% of their treasury, and I mean, $250 million. Incredible. I think, the yeah, amazing. I think the more companies that do that, the bigger moat that builds around Bitcoin. And I think it'd be very difficult then for the government to... I'd say ban it. Let's let's say the the most extreme level. It'd be therefore interesting to see. I mean, I think the most interesting thing is when a government adopts Bitcoin. That will be the most interesting time and whether we we will see that.
0: It it will be. If I'm not mistaken, I saw one of the Swiss cantons a couple of weeks ago said they would start accepting tax payments in, I think, Bitcoin and, and maybe Ethereum too. I'm not sure. But that... Is ultimately really your stamp of approval, right? Where if you can pay your tax bills, and then, if I'm not mistaken, the state of Ohio here, uh, I can yes. pay in Bitcoin, and it's it, that's what I, I that's what I use it you know use it for. Quite frankly, I, I take money I, every every week. If I have a surplus, you know, what's revenues? What are my expenses? What do I have left? Set some aside for prospective taxes, and then I, I hive some into Bitcoin. And yes. if I get to the end of a quarter and I own Bitcoin. And, and partly I do that because I've already got a full gold position and have had a full gold position. And so it's sort of my, you know, to your point, gold is a pain in the butt to move in and out of, you know, if you own physical, I gotta go to the vault and I gotta, you know, uh, you know, meet with the people there and 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 that on one hand it's a pain. On the other hand, it's the discipline of I'm just not gonna touch that. Whereas the Bitcoin is sort of the the same types of Stored energy over time, uh, uh, moving through time for me. Um, but it's much easier to, to to move around cash flows with.
1: Wow, well, I'm glad you're in Bitcoin, man. And it's uh, I think it's a real vote of confidence when people like yourself are, and you know, especially with the type of work you do. Um, just so people are listening, it's this is just an opportunity for you. Just like, how do they find you, and who are the type of people that would most benefit from? working with your company, the kind of people that you would want to hear from?
0: Sure. No. So you can find out more about us at our website, fftt-llc.com. And uh, I also have a very active Twitter feed at Luke Grohman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. And you go on the website, you can see um, our different research offerings. And like I said, we do uh, high net worth individual institutional product offerings, uh, and then we also have a, a, a retail and RIA product that has proven very popular. I, I, for what we found from our clients is you know, basically anybody that is interested in unique views on the world at a time when data has increasingly become commoditized and the ability to frame and analyze that data has, be, in a unique manner has become the real the real uh, bottleneck, the real valuable commodity, those those uh, people tend to be our clients uh, is the feedback we get. And so if you're interested, I'd encourage you to take a look at it, whether you're institution, high net worth, or retail, we have a number of different product offerings uh, that would be suitable for each.
1: Fan- fantastic. Well, listen, fascinating. You've made me more bullish on Bitcoin, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, no, it's just fascinating to hear, Yeah. You know, your kind of perspective on what's happening um and thanks for coming on i really appreciate it i'll be interested to uh, i'll probably ping you in about six months and say uh, are you still at two or three percent or are you, are you a bit higher are you at maybe five percent i'll um <laughs> i'll do that but listen look good luck with everything you do stay in touch and if i can ever do anything for you please reach out and uh, yeah i really appreciated this luke
0: thanks for having me on it's been an excellent chat i really enjoyed speaking with you so uh i uh, yeah i'd be happy to uh, to follow up again in six months or so so thank you very much
1: Alrighty, what did you think of that one? Did you enjoy listening to Luke? You know, I love talking to people like Luke. It is a real vote of confidence for Bitcoin. And it definitely gives me the confidence in storing my wealth here, and that I'm making the right decisions. Now, I obviously have a lot more, you know, as a percentage, let's say, of my wealth in in Bitcoin than Luke. But it's good to hear these people who've come from a more traditional background who are seeing the value in Bitcoin. It's great. I think I will follow up with Luke at some point, six months to a year, and just get an update on what's happening with him and whether he's increased his 2% of net worth in Bitcoin, which could be significantly higher anyway um, if Bitcoin goes on a run. But yeah, it'd be great to catch up with Luke and see, you know, if he's become more of a stronger advocate of Bitcoin. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, I am really reaching out and asking for people to go to itunes and leave reviews at the moment they really help with the ranking of the show so if you've got a couple of minutes if you like the show just go to itunes and leave a review outside of that if you listen to my show on defiance 1333 days about the band the ghost inside i followed up with them i did an interview with the band that's available on defiance and also starting next week on monday my three-parter looking at galaine maxwell that kicks off so yeah check that out that's all available at defiance.news outside of that have a great weekend and i will see you all soon